0: And welcome to FuturePod, I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Richard Yonk. Richard Yonk is a Seattle-based futurist whose outlook on the future was informed in part by over 25 years experience as a computer systems programmer analyst, during which time he guided clients through the rapidly shifting technological landscape. He founded Intelligent Futures Consulting, where he consults the business and organizations, speaks to audiences and writes about artificial intelligence and other emerging trends and technologies with a focus on their impacts on business and society and to promote our preferred futures. Richard's writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The Futurist Magazine, Scientific American, World Future Review, Fast Company, Wired, and Psychology Today. His books include Heart of the Machine in 2017, and his new book, Futures Mind. And Richard, importantly, is also a FuturePond patron, so it's a real pleasure to welcome you to FuturePod, Richard.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Peter, for uh, having me. It's awesome to be a part of uh, your program, your series. Uh, You've had some amazing people from the field on your show, and uh, I'm honored to be a part of it.
0: Thanks, Richard. So, question one everyone starts with this one, Richard. I'm sure as a patron, you know it. So, what is the Richard Yonk story? How did you become a member of the futures and foresight community?
1: Like everybody else, it's a Story that I suppose I didn't foresee. So many of us come about uh, to futures in a kind of roundabout way. Like a lot of people, I approached it from a field that was only peripherally related. I have a background in computer science and media studies. And I think this gave me a unique perspective as the digital convergence unfolded during the 1980s and 1990s. So Part of my very early background, though I came from a background with a lot of science, a lot of different science, was that I went into media production from very young age and, as a result, uh, worked in the field and produced science education programs. Huh. Now, during that time, there was a lot of new technology. We were moving into from film into video the video world was transforming very very rapidly and it was really interesting to see not just from a technological standpoint the all of the technology change and how we were doing different aspects of creating a program but also that the economics the Companies that were having to, it was traditional, they would, because rental was so expensive, people would buy lease equipment and you had to commit for a, a longer, it ended up uh, turning out than the technology was good for. Yeah. It was becoming antiquated too quickly. And so businesses were going out of business. So that was an insight and also a real interesting perspective on that convergence that was taking place between computing and uh, different audio and video technologies at that time. So eventually I decided I was kind of tired of that and went into computing work in work primarily for myself, but for some other firms too, doing various uh, computer Analyst work, programming, worked with a lot of uh, interface development, and this ended up informing and influencing some of my perspective on interface design and its ongoing evolution, which in the course of some of my writing, I routinely uh, reference and talk about. So as I was increasingly drawn into the futures community, I found myself writing for lots of different publications. You mentioned a few of them, Scientific American and Fast Company and so forth. And then I wrote, also wrote several cover stories for the Futurist magazine and became a contributing editor there. So all of that sort of got me more and more involved and with the different people in the field my own work increasingly became futures oriented uh, helping organizations anticipate and prepare for inevitable change in their businesses and markets as uh, you know our world accelerated and became a more and more different place uh, you know at differing rates for different industries so today i split my time pretty much between consulting speaking to audiences around the world, and writing different books and articles, most of those around futures-related topics. You mentioned yeah. the two books. I will just make one small correction. The The latest book is Future Minds, and that uh, book is about the, uh, well, the subtitle says it all. It's The Rise of Intelligence from the Big Bang to the End of the Universe. So a uh, kind of big history view of intelligence and how it has uh, developed
0: technology has always changed us history tells us with anthropology how both our tools and such have become part of us but they've also changed us Mm -hmm. it would seem that in your interest that while the computer and ultimately you know the way it, it, it actually operates is just another tool. It's also turning into a, a remarkable relationship we have with the tool, mm-hmm. would you say?
1: Absolutely. Um, in my work in both books and some of the articles, I frequently talk about the coevolution of humanity and technology. This is a pattern that, uh, as you say, anthropologists have talked about, and I try to explore in my own way that's been going on for. Easily three and a half million years from the moment that we started forming uh, stone tools. Uh, and by we, I, I mean Australopithecus, one of our early hominid ancestors. That was a remarkable act to perform at that time. Uh, this is a, a species that had a brain case that made it put, probably put it on par for intelligence with uh, a chimpanzee, possibly a little more, but that creating a stone tool is more complex and more elaborate and requires more sequential steps than a lot of people recognize. I talk about it in the first book a little bit more about the idea that it takes 100 hours for a modern person, of uh, to, for them to practice it enough to become even moderately proficient at it. And this is something that provided an enormous benefit to that early species. But what was also essentially in all of that is that this is a a species that is really pre-language. They did not have anything like language as we know it or think of it today and so this had to be passed along for over 150 thousand generations mm. to come to the modern era now during that time during just the next well 2 million years our brain case that brain case across species homo habilis neanderthal ourselves that increased by three times we developed our the forebrain that we uh, have today, but all of that time, creating those stone tools. Uh, actually, we have shown in the labs in modern time that this alters our brain organization, and it's been correlated with strongly with uh, Brodman's areas uh, forty-five and forty-four uh, in the brain, which are known these days in uh, as uh, Broca's area. Now, this is a part of the brain that is closely tied to uh, speech use. What seems to have happened is, over millions of years—good to three, nearly three million years—that area of the brain was developed more and more for being able to deal with sequential information, certain types of self-control, and so forth. That got appropriated, what in evolutionary terms is known as accepted. And this became on one side of our brains, uh, this Broca's area that's so involved and essential to uh, language. So here you have tools actually transforming us into the species we are today.
0: So has Richard always thought through long time, deep time, you mentioned big history, which is not a common way of seeing history joining up the Big Bang, you know, to present date and future. I mean, is this something that was always in you or something that you picked up on your journey through life?
1: I can't say always. Uh, We all have to acquire a certain base level of knowledge and information from a very young age, uh, probably six or seven. I was very interested in inventors and inventions, uh, how they uh, developed. Uh, I read lots of biographies, people like Tesla, Einstein, Edison, Steinmetz, all kinds of people back when I was very, very young. And it was just all part of, I was just fascinated with the whole pantheon and foundation of, of science. Now, that kind of gave me, a, a I guess, a, something of a systems view of things. But only later on, probably in my teens, I started reading people like Sagan, and uh, was, uh, you know, he definitely took a much larger, uh, something like a big history kind of, of view and approached. and that was uh, something that I pretty much carried through. But it definitely has informed uh, the structure of of my books, and uh, certainly reference it in my writing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sagan's famous line for me, which stuck with me, was we're all star stuff.
1: Ah, yes. I think I actually used that one recently. We are very much a part of the universe, and that's something I really find fascinating to explore in the course of these books. That I know that they operate and, and are relevant to the current day and and the coming decades and and business business use type perspectives. In those time frames. But I can't help but want to put it in a framework and a, 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 understand it within a lar- much larger context. Because uh, to my mind, that's that's re- not just interesting, but that's who we are.
0: Yeah. Another guest of ours, a colleague of mine, I taught with uh, Joe Voros. He was on the board of Big History. Mm-hmm. And he taught Big History to uh, undergraduate students at our university. And What he said to me was that when you teach the big history from the Big Bang till now, then kids have had like a a multi-billion-year run-up. They don't stop then. They want to know what's next. It goes naturally from big history to, well, what will the future be? What could the future be? And that was always the connection that Joe said, that that when you teach big time, people get more interested in the future because they understand the future is just an extension of time.
1: I totally agree. I think it has a corollary in the nature of culture as well. When we understand our history as a people, we have a really different perspective on our place in all of that and appreciation and so forth. And when you kind of extend that out even further to explore and, and understand how we fit into this vast cosmos, it actually you know provides another deeper layer of of that
0: thanks richard the second question the one i encourage the guests to talk about a a concept or a framework that is a core to their practice so what do you want to talk to the listeners about
1: well, I'm probably going to ramble a little bit here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it pointed. Within my work, I definitely reference things like the Houston Foresight Framework as a general guide, and I use tools like horizon scanning. And I, regu- every day, I, I read papers and uh, scan and do research that, in the course of, I'm constantly kind of trying to make connections, put things together, connect the dots, like all of us are. And this, for me, is one of the most natural and yet most special things that we do as, as futurists. Our evolution as a species turned us into these amazing pattern recognition systems. And that, to my mind, is incredibly powerful. It's really our superpower when you think about it. You know, neural networks today can do all kinds of amazing, very, very narrow, pattern recognition work, and so forth. But when it comes to something much broader, when it comes to being able to connect the dots and, and make those associations of all this disparate, unlabeled, unstructured information, that's where we exceed, and I think are going to continue to exceed machines for quite some time. So to my mind, part of what I do just always comes back to this idea that, it's about finding the patterns and using the tools that we have you know I love a range of different ideas the the three horizons pace layers c l a these are are great tools and i depending on what I'm doing, I'll apply them but ultimately, for me, it's helping other people and helping myself actually see and understand and make new connections make those uh, insights that maybe weren't apparent before. Mm. So that's a, a big part of it. But I think if there's a single tool that I use more than others, it's the scenario. Because in the course of my writing and and a certain amount of of speaking as well, I'll routinely use this as a means of drawing in the audience drawing in the reader if you read my books i think the last these last two every chapter opens with a scenario it it was a a structure that i just felt was very helpful to try to tell a story that can be dry if if don't approach it the right way and it's important to be able to keep it in a, a make it relevant to the reader so it's not unusual that I'll do that even with some of my articles. So I'd probably turn to scenarios as much as anything as a as a means of not just understanding my work, but trying to communicate it.
0: Yeah. I to go back to the pattern recognition one. It's an interesting one for me because there's a paradox there. I mean, clearly pattern recognition is a huge evolutionary advantage. Yes. Making sense of a changing environment, dangerous environment, that kind of thing. But at the same time, we've also become aware of the confirmation bias—the fact that our (laughs) brain will take existing patterns and apply those to what possibly is not the same situation. So we've actually had to become consciously aware of our both both become better at pattern recognition, but also become consciously aware to choose to use pattern recognition or to, if you like, suppress it or make it work for us.
1: It's a really great point. It's uh, You nailed it on the head, uh, Peter. I uh, was going to expand in that direction most certainly. One of the problems of pattern recognition is it. it's not just confirmation bias, it's a range of cognitive biases. And one that we're all dealing with in the form of uh, recent conspiracy theories and, and that kind of thing, is uh, known as uh, apophenia. And what this is is the tendency for us to make connections between unrelated things, connections to, that are meant to suggest uh, something very important, something that uh, has relevance uh, when, it doesn't hap- when it doesn't exist at all our evolving to be able to recognize patterns in the environment had great evolutionary benefit. But as anyone who's sat on the ground and just kind of stared up at the sky on a summer's day knows, I mean, you can see all kinds of famous figures or animals or what have you in clouds. And this is just part of that, our brain kind of switching into that mode we see various mirages visually because of this. And we certainly put together, in terms of uh, information, all kinds of strange beliefs because we think we see patterns in the environment.
0: Mm. A few guests, particularly Zia Sada, who talks about the rise of what he calls post-normal conditions. And Zia talks about, along with the rise of information, has become the rise of ignorance. And uh, along with the grand narratives that may have sustained us as communities or nations for Mm -hmm. hundreds of years, that if we're moving into post-normal times, the failure of grand narratives to actually adequately explain what might happen next. And hence we're in this both scary and creative space where we need to create possibly new narratives new scenarios new images for what the future could be at the time when we want to hang on to things that have served us well for long periods of time
1: i totally agree i it's something i've giving a lot of thought to these days i think that there's a need for a kind of new framework a new call it mythology a way of seeing and thinking about not just our future but i think our past as well mm. as we kind of move into the current day where we see our past in very, very different light than our ancestors did. And that is kind of leaving us, I think, a little um, unanchored in many respects. We're at a, a point where we look back at some of that past and it's like, wow, those weren't very nice people. And that's not true. That's not a way that we should be really perceiving that, but it, there's a tendency to want to kind of not that we tend to throw out a little too much. Sometimes there's a lot of really great aspects about our past, but yeah, we, you know, we've, we have slavery in our past. We have all kinds of aspects of misogyny and we have been a very violent species at certain times. And we've, you know, certain people in certain groups at different stages have, performed all kinds of atrocities, but we're also an amazing species with all kinds of potential as well. If your readers have read Stephen Pinker's uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, yeah. that is a really good book. I know some people feel that there's some uh, cherry picking in there, but uh, if you actually go through that book, it is incredibly dense with some really good scholarship. And I think that that gives... A lot of hope, uh, in terms of that. Yeah, we're we're kind of hitting a few speed bumps right now, but the overall, very long term perspective is that we are becoming a a much more peaceful and generally uh, altruistic type of society. Thanks, Richard.
0: Tree. The, we've already sort of sketched a little bit in this out, but this is the this is the well, what are the patterns? What is the sense that Richard Yonk is making of the world around him and us? Yeah, you know, what are the things that are getting you excited? And you've already suggested some of those, and possibly the things that give you cause for concern or sure. careful attention. But how is the future looking or the futures looking to you?
1: Well there's so many different directions to take this. Uh, it's one of those questions that I think I'm. I'm assuming other guests have probably had uh, similar feelings about. Since uh, we're all exploring a lot of different uh, uh, aspects of uh, the future, usually, for me, it part of it has to do with the different timescales. When I'm talking to and and uh, working with clients, I'm I'm really trying to dial things into. Of a 5, 10, 20-year time frame. And that is a particular perspective and a particular uh, set of concerns. And then, obviously, as soon as I start zooming out and looking at uh, a bigger history view, whether that's a big history in terms of our species, a big history in terms of our universe, uh, it really kind of changes the perspective and, and how it informs what I'm looking at. So I spoke a little bit about the idea of Co evolution of humanity and technology. And, and that's something that it's gone on all of our existence, and it's going to pretty much be our relationship to technology uh, going forward for a very, very long time. There's, I can't see that that's ever going to uh, abate. But in the course of doing that, in the course of our raising up technology and it raising us up, supporting each other. Uh, going forward, one of the things that is taking place is the evolution of interfaces. And this is something that I'll talk about at some length. And ever since we had technology, we've needed interfaces. And interface is essentially a means by which we interact with or are able to control a given technology. The simpler the technology, the less elaborate the interface needs to be. But as it technology becomes more and more complex it we need to have more and more elaborate and interfaces and often interfaces that abstract the process further and further away from us so as we've developed computers we've moved away from the machine language moving up differing levels of computer languages to the point where we got to the stage in the 1980s where we started having graphic user interfaces and all of a sudden pretty much all of the populace could start operating and using a computer. We moved into natural user interfaces and this is things like voice recognition, gesture recognition, uh, different kinds of touch screens and so forth. And all of a sudden you can hand a an iPhone, an iPad to a toddler, and they can start operating certain kinds of of programs. This is something that would never have been thinkable uh, 50 years ago. So this is a progression that is not stopping. It's going to continue. And part of our upcoming few decades involve a progression of interfaces that are going to really change our relationship to technology. So we think Further out, we talk about things like brain-computer interfaces, and that's probably going to eventually come. People like uh, Elon Musk and and others are working on various versions of this. But anyway, there are many other steps and stages before this. The idea of moving into an era of having a continually worn form of glasses, Apple Glass, should be out uh, sometime within the next couple of years. We're going to see eventually some form of uh, smart contact lens and so forth. But what we're already moving into right now is the digital assistants that are able to be activated and interacted with uh, through voice recognition, with speech being one of the most basic forms of interaction that we have. Now, this is something we do very, very naturally from a very young age. And so it's really an excellent means of interfacing with our technology. Now, as AI allows this technology to become more and more sophisticated and more and more adept, these are going to essentially be our intermediaries, our fairly active emissaries, I guess, into the technological world. And so this is something that I think is going to be an ongoing progression. So to my mind, that's a, a big move that we're looking ahead to in the course of the, the coming decade and certainly two.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing I hear there, Richard, is that what, what you're describing to me is the, the gap between the technology and us gets closer and closer and closer to the point where the technology may become part of us, physically part of us, in terms of becoming, you know, the human technology hybrid, embedded technology. Or another way it becomes closer and closer is our relationship is less through instrumental control and more through relational and emotional control. And that's a very different relationship that we have with technology.
1: I think that's very true. I, my first book, Heart of the Machine, is about emotion AI or artificial emotional intelligence and looks a lot at that, not just control, but how that eventually alters our relationship to technology that it becomes a much more personal kind of interaction and i can foresee that when i refer to something like a digital assistant that if this gets to a, a enough sophistication where there's the ability to recognize and incorporate our emotional states to have an understanding of human relationship and essentially theory of mind, that that gets this technology much more to a point where we interact with it as a a companion, a friend, or what have you. Now, before I go too much further, this doesn't necessarily mean that the technology has to be conscious to do this. This is something that, that people kind of fall into that, that thinking of when i talk about this and really this couldn't be achieved without there being any sense or form of experience or self-awareness or what have you as we define it that it's possible to create a system or i can anticipate a system that will be able to interact with us with enough Similitude is that the right word for this? To to be able to essentially trick us, it, we may know we may be told daily this is not a, a a living thing, this is not a conscious thing, but we have a tendency already to anthropomorphize, to fall into patterns with our technology where we start treating it as if it's another entity, another person, or what have you.
0: I remember a famous story, which was when I brought. I think it was called the Roomba. Was that the little vacuum cleaner that used to run around your house? Sure. And people sort of rang up when their Roomba stopped and they rang up, you know, the help desk and the help desk said, oh, it sounds like the motor's burned out. If you send us your Roomba room, we'll send you another one. (laughs) And the person would say, no, I want to keep Doris.
1: And so, (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
0: I wonder though, Richard, there's a very, very strong cultural dimension here that I think, plays out. And in the West, I'm going to say we have got, if you like, the sort of Gollum slash Frankenstein story. Mm-hmm. But how different that is in a place like Japan. Yep. It has a, seems to have a different cultural relationship with how it sees its interaction and relationship with technology. And I wonder whether that's also going to be going through a change process.
1: It's so hard to say. I totally agree. That there are cultural differences, different ways that uh, different cultures uh, respond to and react to and anticipate working with technology uh, going forward. Japan has not only a cultural history uh, in terms of media and uh, and other sources that kind of put them in a, a much more accepting uh, position for things like robotics and and AI but there's also a significant need the, uh, the the country is aging probably at just about as fast as any country in the world and needs a lot of different kinds of help down the way in terms of being able to help uh, support uh, the their aging population now one of the ways that they are doing that is by investing heavily in AI and robotics for exactly those purposes, uh, for both hospital and assisted uh, living uh, type of functions. So that's you know, there's both I think need and probably uh, a general trend in the society to uh, to acceptance.
0: Mm, yeah, and the same with you know the Tamagotchi you know phenomenon, which we mm-hmm. saw as a fad, but we're also seeing that they're able to produce kind of pets that they can give to people with dementia
1: mm-hmm. sure.
0: and the, the people it does appear to have a kind of calming settling effect to give people a, a kind of lifelike object that they can't actually
1: damage absolutely uh Pero is the uh, little uh, baby seal pup that is a basically a robot that responds to an, all kinds of different sensors that respond to uh, touch sound and so forth so they they can kind of give this impression that they are interacting with the person who is holding them it's it's what i was referring to before where the, there doesn't have to be a consciousness there for us to connect with and interact with these machines uh in a way that basically they're pushing a certain uh, of our evolutionary buttons
0: Thanks, Richard. Fourth question, the communication one. How do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: Yeah, that's always uh, been an interesting conversation. I don't have any huge insights that, Others on your show have, uh, haven't already kind of covered. I usually say something general, like futures work is a systems-based exploration that draws on insights from our past historical patterns of processes and behaviors, and combining this with trends and dynamics from our present to identify and prepare for a number of different possible and probable futures, and ideally working toward preferable future that uh, we desire in the end now i hopefully if i'm in a more general conversation like a cocktail party or something like that and by the way I, I, our listeners i'm sure remember when we all used to be able to stand closer than six feet together or apart <laughs> yeah. uh, for something like that i might uh, say something more like you know futurists do what we all do naturally and finding patterns in the world and and anticipating what comes next and so while Everyone there might be thinking and looking out 10 or 20 minutes ahead and thinking about what is going to happen and modeling that. Uh, A futurist does exactly the same kinds of things, maybe does it uh, in a little more systemized way, to look out 5, 10, 20 years' time to be able to help people anticipate what's going to happen and how to prepare for that. It's going to be fuzzier, of course, but you know it's something we we just generally do very, very naturally as a species anyway. Uh, it's a kind of a continual process that we're all in the midst of, whether we're talking about just when we get up in the morning or we're planning for our retirement.
0: Do you think that the conditions that we've been through in 2020 mm-hmm. and uh, and the and the experiences of the people that we work with or are you? Have you already started to change how you explain what it is you do and what it is the future is to, given the given the immediate experience that people have had all around us?
1: Uh, it sometimes it's not necessarily something that I incorporate into a, a, you know that kind of conversation. I I may reference it you know if anything the fact that uh, here in the U.S. we had basically a book the the executive office level where we had planned for this kind of eventuality almost everybody in the future's world knows you know we've been talking about some form of pandemic is coming it always does if we look back historically you know we can see this occurring on a you know regular basis back through you know the millennia and we knew that eventually we were going to have to contend with this well having a plan having done some some projecting forward and and preparing doesn't necessarily do any good if that's just all going to be thrown away and ignored so if anything it's kind of i, I may reference it and talk about it in terms of you know actual follow through and change management and so forth going forward from you know the work that's already been done you know i, I don't think it necessarily, to my mind it doesn't necessarily change how and what we do and need to do, it certainly has made this year really challenging to stay up on, uh, to know just you know where we're going to be a week, a month, even a year down the way. I think that things are definitely going to be different, but I will be surprised if in five years' time it's not a lot more call it normal, than a lot of people are anticipating. I think we will see some pivots, some changes. Uh, it's definitely going to impact younger people who are in the midst of a range of both forming their ideas and their, their perspectives and their, their tribes and so forth. But also, it's going to, uh, unfortunately, have a significant impact on, on uh, them economically as well. But I think in terms of how we interact with each other and operate and go through the world, and I don't know that it's necessarily going to change a lot of that or the stories directly. I think we need to. Mm -hmm. But I am of the opinion that we may be a little more entrenched. Yeah, This may not be enough to make us pivot the way we need to.
0: I think you picked up an important point. I was looking at a table of you know, the relative, the fatality and morbidity effects and kind of you know, the lead ladder of all the countries in the world. Mm. And what's stark is that the first world countries have generally performed much worse
1: mm-hmm.
0: at managing this than countries like you know, Thailand and yeah. significant parts of Africa if you like it, the the so called second and third world had a greater capability to handle this change, and the first world didn't. I and mean, that's a fascinating
1: mm-hmm.
0: issue to start a conversation on. I would, I would think.
1: I agree. I think there's a lot of variables in there that have to be kind of separated in the course of, of that exploration and conversation. But, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's really fascinating. I think people are probably going to be dissecting that one for many years or a decade to come.
0: Let's go to the last question. Uh, I'd love you to talk about the book.
1: Certainly. So... Future Minds is uh, an outgrowth of a uh, range of the work, the writing, the research that I've been doing over the the years, and actually is a book that kind of had it in mind for almost two decades that I, this was a book that I wanted to write. When I was looking at it back then, uh, I didn't feel there were a number of connections that were still not quite fitting together. And there was research in earlier this decade of insights and breakthroughs that seemed to kind of tie things together in ways that I was really looking for. So the book Future Minds, as we've talked about, starts from a really big view. In the course of wanting to explore the the future of intelligence, I really felt that to begin with, I had to understand what intelligence is. This is something that we think we we know or we think we understand, but really, when you start trying to get people to define this, it really covers the gamut. There is, in the course of doing research, uh, I ran across more than two hundred definitions <laughs> of intelligence, and they really, you know, whether we're talking about the you know intelligence of a single-celled organism, the intelligence of certain types of ai the intelligence of a grandmaster chess player or the intelligence of an octopus these are all very very different and yet there has to be some kernel some something that's linking all of this and so and it goes to my mind beyond just our use of language so in exploring it i took a very, very big view and uh, built out some ideas about how this all is generated by the universe again and again and again in the course of its running down, in the course of how thermodynamics drive the general trend of increasing entropy in the universe. It also creates these pockets of complexity. And it does this across all scales in the universe. Now, we had to move through some periods uh, to get here. We had to have the development of uh, elements uh, through nucleosynthesis in the stars. We had to have the beginnings of life before we could begin to start having, you know animal intelligence and so forth. So there all had to be these prior structures that were built upon again and again and again. And there's this increasing general trend of intelligence that occurs. Now, the but intelligence that I don't actually have the definition in front of me that I apply in the book, but it is, it involves this idea that in order to survive, in order to replicate, those things that are best able to perpetuate themselves into the future, to anticipate and perpetuate themselves into the future, are those that are going to survive the best. Those that are able to alter and affect and interact with their environment in a way that allows them to perpetuate only naturally makes sense that those are going to be the the systems that continue on into the future. So something I'm playing with is the idea that in many respects, all of these different systems have climbed this wall of intelligence over the years, this increasing complexity that has developed across 13, 14 billion years of the cosmos that these systems are themselves becoming more and more capable of understanding and interacting with the future. And that's where we find ourselves today. And we're in the unique position that we actually get to think about this and actually reflect on it. But we're not only intelligent enough to know what we're doing, but to actually influence it. Mm. And so I'm because of that hopeful that this will allow us to survive uh, some scary times and move into the the future in a way that will allow us to perpetuate as a species co-evolving with technology in, you know, well into the future of the universe.
0: There's the aspect of intelligence and there's this notion, particularly this human notion of what we call wisdom, and mm. um, where does wisdom fit in the equation so to speak?
1: It's a really interesting question, Peter, and uh, one that uh, one of your guests uh, has uh, brought up with me uh, at length, uh, Tom Lombardo. This is a an aspect of our intelligence that to be fair, I haven't adequately explored in in my books partially because the concept is itself, worthy of its own book. It's it's huge. Mm. But I would offer that wisdom, uh, off the cuff here, uh, wisdom is essentially an outgrowth or a, an extension of our intelligence. Uh, it it re- involves and revolves around uh, a lot of self-reflection, uh, something that's essentially uh, iterative to be able to look at a lot of different aspects of ourselves internally and externally to be able to understand what we can and should become. But um, I think it's a really, really big question and not one that I'm really prepared to answer adequately, I'm afraid.
0: I mean, for me, the difference, the differentiation I have, Richard, is that to me, wisdom is conveyed in hindsight. In other words, wisdom is granted to us by the future because we cannot know if something is wise. The consequences of what we choose or fail to choose produce the future conditions that then are used to then, in hindsight, judge whether our acts were wise or not.
1: It's an interesting perspective. I I can see how it applies. Personally, I would say that we then take, and when I refer to iterative, I think that ties in with this, uh, we take that past viewing perspective on wisdom and apply it to our future choices, future decisions, in the hope that that is leading into uh, a, a a wise choice, a wise decision, a wise future.
0: Yeah. Wasn't that the core of what the Brundtland um, Commission, when it talked about a just future? It talked about further generations having at least the same options that the present generation has.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably one of the, the the biggest things that we have to work on in terms of our the story that we were talking about earlier going forward to be able to see ourselves as stewards of the future, to be able to work toward a world that is being adequately considerate of those that come after us. We, are, we have to exist. We have to be happy to a degree in our current world, but we can't do it at the expense of future generations. We have to consider our place and their place in this whole scheme as we build this future together.
0: Yeah, I can hear. Well, Richard, it has been a blast to talk. I've thoroughly I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Myself, too.
0: It's always great to talk to a FuturePod patron and say thank you for your support.
1: Absolutely.
0: Because uh, it does mean a lot to us at FuturePod. So, on behalf of the community, thanks for taking some time out and good luck with the new book.
1: Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it so much and uh, really uh, wish you luck with uh, FuturePod. It's an awesome uh, series and uh, can't wait to hear who comes next.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.